Jesus, who is the life, has shone his light into our hearts and we pour forth the love of Jesus. We pour forth his light into the world as we move around in the world, as we live and work and rest and also play. Our goal being that as others see the way in which we love they and find out that we're Christians, they'll give glory to the Father in heaven, which is what it says there in the text in verse 16. So first thing to do, praise God that you are saved, that you are loved, that you are the salt of the earth. Not just electricians are salt of the earth. All Christians are the salt of the earth. Electricians certainly are in the room. Where are you? There you are. There's one. There's another one. Um, all Christians, you are the salt of the earth. You who follow Jesus are the light of the world. This is who you are. This is who you are called to be, salt and light. And this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful blessing and privilege. And it's of critical importance that you remember that as we move forward in the text into this challenging passage today. So there's the image to remind you who you are, salt and light in the world because Jesus' light has first shone into your hearts. Now, if that's who you are, and it is, then the implication is that we will delight in following Jesus and living for him. And one of the primary ways we show our delight is by obeying his word, his law. If we obey his law, then we certainly won't murder others. In fact, we won't even get angry towards others, as the kids learned today. If we delight in his law, we'll not commit adultery. In fact, we won't even lust in our heart after others. If we're his children, we'll not get divorced. We'll keep our promise to our spouse made at the altar. If we long to please him, there will be people who speak the truth at all times. We've got no need to make an oath. However... There's a big problem. We're still sinners living in a broken world. I long for the day when you and I can, can and will keep God's law perfectly, but we're not there yet. And the reality is we do break the law and we do sin in all kinds of ways, certainly all these kinds of ways. So our challenge today is to work out how, as weak and feeble sinners, do we keep God's law, which is what we're meant to do. And what do we do if we've broken God's law, which we all have, in different ways? Some of us have gotten angry, even in a rage at someone. Some of us have lusted. In fact, might be prone to lust. Perhaps you've committed adultery. Some are divorced. Some of us don't keep our word. What then? We've all broken the law in some way. What happens then? How, as weak sinners loved by God, saved by grace, are we to keep God's law? And I think more importantly, how are we to go on in grace if we've broken it? Okay, so that's what we're working on this morning, and we're going to answer this morning. So point one, Jesus and the law. Remember, firstly, who you are. I'm going to say at the start of almost every point, so you don't forget, because it's very important. Sin can cause us to spiral into shame and grief and despair, but we mustn't. You are a child of God, saved by grace. You are the salt of the earth and the light to the world. Got it? Good. Okay. Jesus, us, and the law. 
Well, to help me with explaining the law this morning, God doubly graced me the other night with a phone call from Josh Edwards. The first grace was that Josh is always encouraging to talk to and he never fails to make me laugh. So it was great that he called. That was a grace in itself, just to chat to Josh. But the second grace in talking to Josh was that he had an essay to do on the law, first century Christians and modern Christians focusing on Galatians. So we chatted about the law for half an hour. And what we talked about applies here today and helped me write my sermon. What a bonus. Um, Jesus says... Uh, there in verses 17 and 18, as plain as the nose on your face, that he hasn't come to abolish the law or do away with it. And he's, he's, in the, you know, he's talking to Pharisees and others, and they think he's a crackpot. They think he's come to just do away with it and do whatever he likes and make up his own rules. And he says, no, 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 no. In fact, in verse 19, Jesus says, anyone who fails to keep even one of the smallest of the laws will miss out on heaven. Verse 20, have a look. So he isn't coming to abolish the law. He's coming to raise the bar on the law, actually. He says, our law abidance must surpass even the Pharisees who are obsessed with the law if we want to enter into heaven. That is, if we're depending on ourselves to get into heaven, then our law abidance needs to surpass the Pharisees. In fact, it needs to be perfect. If you disobey even the smallest law, you'll miss out on the kingdom of heaven. What? does the law do? The law is a wonderful thing given to Israel and us by God. It has two main purposes. The first was to show Israel that they were sinners so that they would turn to God for forgiveness. They would realize they're in trouble. They're under judgment. They've disobeyed God. They need him. The law revealed to them and reveals to us we've offended God and there's consequences for that. No one is perfect, not even one. So rather than leaving us to ignorantly face judgment on that final day, the law blesses us by revealing our need for grace and forgiveness. We can't fully obey it. No one could except for one man, Jesus Christ. So Jesus stepped into our humanity and completely upheld God's law perfectly where Israel failed and where we fail. He doesn't ignore it. He's not doing away with it. He perfectly obeys it in its entirety, something that we're far from capable of doing because of sin. Through faith in him, his righteousness, that is his perfect law-keepingness, is imputed to us. It's legally given to us. We're the beneficiaries of Jesus' imputed righteousness. Through faith in Jesus, God now sees Jesus' righteousness given to us. When he looks upon us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not our own unrighteousness. Does that make sense? Jesus' perfect law abidance is given to us through faith. It's as if we've never sinned. It's as if we've kept the law perfectly because we're in him. There is no more law-keeping to be done by us to merit salvation. It's all been done by Jesus, okay? So as a Christian, how do you feel about that? Well, that's great. That's fantastic. That's the best you've ever heard, I hear you say. And what can I do for Jesus to show my appreciation for this wonderful blessing of forgiveness of sins and imputed righteousness. What can I do, I hear you ask? 
I'm glad you asked. What you can do in order to show your appreciation to God for blessing you with his righteousness and grace and forgiveness of sins is obey the law, is keep God's law, is obey what he tells you to do. So then the second purpose of the law is to show us how we are to live as God's chosen people. That's what Jesus is doing today. He's unpacking the law for his followers so they know how to live. The law shows us people who've been saved by Jesus how to live. It shows us we need grace and then it shows us how to live once we've got grace. Really helpful thing, the law. So we, the law to us is this golden, precious opportunity to say thanks to God through word and deed. You know that terrible moment when someone's done something for you that's really great and you really want to thank them but you just don't know how? Well, you know how. You can obey the law. That's how we thank God for his blessings of grace to us is we obey the law. Our righteousness does surpass that of the Pharisees who are obsessed with law-keeping but still imperfect because our righteousness doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. Does that make sense? Who's got a question right now on that? Be brave. You're in a safe place. Anyone? Does that make sense? I'm seeing little nods. I hope it makes sense. Now, that's all really important as we go forward into the trickier stuff. Because of the law, we turn to Christ for forgiveness and grace. Because of grace and forgiveness from Christ, we joyfully, willingly, wholeheartedly obey the law in a way that a Pharisee never could. Because Pharisees didn't get it in their heart. Okay. Now, point two in your handouts, if you're taking notes, or following along, is murder and anger. Firstly, remember who you are, a child of God, saved by grace, the soul of the earth, light of the world. Yes, 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 yes. Good. Look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Insert modern day insults that people use towards one another when they're really angry there. <coughs> okay. This is actually pretty straightforward, though. I think it's actually often misinterpreted. Look very clearly at what Jesus explicitly says. The Mosaic law says, do not murder. But I tell you, even if you are angry, angry to the point that you feel the desire to go so far as insulting with words, certainly with actions, you too are subject to judgment. If you're so angry, you're also subject to judgment, as is the person who murdered. We all know murder's bad, but let me tell you, Jesus says, anger directed towards another person is also bad. He didn't say feeling angry is murder of the heart, or feeling angry is just as bad as murdering someone. It's not. Um, what is implied is that often anger is a key ingredient on the road to murder, certainly with Cain and Abel, 
But anger does not equal murder, okay? Jesus feels anger at the Pharisees in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. Lara covered this in the kids' spot. I hope you're listening. He gets angry in the temple courts when the money changers have set up camp. Jesus gets angry at times, but his anger always results in godliness. He drove out the money changers, teaching those who were there that this is God's house and this is inappropriate. He healed the man with a shriveled hand in Mark 3, despite the Pharisees' advances. Now, like I said, I've got to go through this fast, and that's regrettable, but please ask your questions. Look at verse 23. You might not have noticed this before. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Sacrificial system was very important to the Jews. It was handed down to them by God himself. It was required of them. Jesus says more important than that is to be reconciled with the one with whom you have conflict. Leave your gift at the altar. Go seek out the one who has something against you and sort it out. Look at that. If you've caused anger, this isn't just as if you've got anger, if you've caused anger in another person, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and seek them out and make reconciliation with them. And then it goes on to say, if they're taking you to court, well, kind of follow them to the courthouse and try and sort it out on the way, you know, like nip this in the bud right now. Don't wait. If you have caused someone to be angry towards you, then you ought to seek reconciliation with them ASAP. Jesus is not just interested in what we do with our hands, he's interested in what we do with our hearts as well. The Pharisees were obsessed with law-keeping, but their hearts were as black as night. Don't kill people. Yes, of course. Now, on a side note, I'm happy to discuss war, if you want, later on, and just war theory. I'm also happy to discuss abortion later on, if you want, in the kind of meta subject of murder. Um, and I'm really, I can't deal with it right now, and that's, yeah, that's hard. But I'm happy to t- talk about it more later, if, if you need to or want to, that's a sensitive topic for you. Please let me know. Murder is killing out of self-interest, in my opinion definition don't murder with your hands don't hate and rage at one another with your heart either the one who's been shown infinite grace upon grace which is us all if we're trusting in jesus copious amounts of forgiveness the one who's salt and light must be salt and light in the midst of conflict as well with another person you cannot call yourself a christian whilst harboring ill feelings towards another person long term you've got to sort it out You've got to sort it out. And if you need the help of a trusted Christian friend, well, that's so be it. Get that help. If you need my help, please ask. You have to sort it out. We can't harbour ill feelings towards another long term. You've got to sort it out for us to have unity and fellowship and to obey our Lord's command. Point three. Adultery and lust. Remember who you are. You are a child of God, saved by grace. You are the salt of the earth and a light to the world. Verse 27. 
You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Same goes for your right hand, which is your sword-bearing hand. Same goes for your right foot, those of you lead foots out there. If your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Good luck speeding without a right foot. Good luck also changing gears without a right foot. Sorry for the crash jokes, just trying to lighten the mood a little bit before we dive back in. So I could use a bit of an emotional break. Okay, adultery and lust. Adultery here refers to all sex outside of the God-given union between man and woman, that is husband and wife. It's a command to the unmarried as well as to the married. Adultery in marriage is devastating. So devastating that Jesus gave it as a concession for divorce, which we'll get to a bit more in point four. I do know, however, a couple from a previous church um, who adultery happened and there was genuine repentance and there was forgiveness and there was reconciliation, which is rare and which was beautiful. It can happen. Reconciliation following adultery is possible. Dare say, not probable. Again, though, and this is similar in one sense to murder and anger, Jesus' primary concern is what we're doing with our hearts as well as our bodies. It is written, do not commit adultery. Jesus raises the bar and says, do not even lust after a woman. He says, women, this doesn't mean it's okay for you to lust. But it's more common for men to struggle in this area than women. In the heart, lust is born. If given time to grow, adultery can follow. Lust is not just looking at another person, looking at a woman and noticing that a woman isn't attractive. In the old days of Pride and Prejudice, which Lara loves, you might say she is handsome. The white Oh, she's handsome. He's handsome. Um, lust is the impure thoughts that follow when noticing about a person. Jesus says to lust after someone is to desire them. King David did it as he stood on the rooftop of his palace and saw Bathsheba. He didn't glance and say, there's a woman there having a bath. I'm going to go back over this way. He watched and he lusted after Bathsheba. And Jesus says it's to commit adultery with them in your heart. And Jesus' primary concern is the heart. And then he goes so far as to say, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and chuck it away. If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off, chuck it away. This is extreme hyperbole, not an encouragement to self-mutilation. There are many ways to disconnect your eye from the object of desire which might cause you to lust. One way is to gouge it out. I don't recommend that. Another might be to read the Bible at your desk at the office to start your day before everyone comes in, the men and the women, and then keep your Bible on your desk for the rest of the day. I'm just giving you one example of 47 million ways in which you can guard against uh, lust is to keep your mind focused on Christ and living for him. 
Um, there's lots and lots of practical ways you can avoid uh, lust. You can, you can um, do something with your eyes to avoid temptation to sin. When I studied at Moore College, the quickest way to get there from the station was through the Sydney Uni grounds, which is full of young and attractive women, often dressed seductively, especially in summer. My friends and I would go the long way. Um, instead of going through the Sydney Uni grounds, we'd walk up and across. Um, it was a few minutes longer, and the temptation to sin was removed. So I had less temptation and more exercise. Bonus. So remove the possibility for lust to keep your mind focused on living for Christ. An obvious evil that I need to talk about and again cannot do justice to in the time that I've been given is pornography. Viewing pornography is adultery of the heart. If married, it's cheating on your spouse in your heart. So do something about it. You're not going to gouge out your eyes and cut off the other end somehow. Get an accountability partner and get the software on your computer. Move the computer into the living room if you need to. I had a friend who was struggling looking at pornography on his smartphone. He got a dumb phone. He got rid of a phone that connected to the internet for the sake of sin. Um, he cut off the internet rather than gouging out his eye. If your eye causes you to sin... Take extreme measures to stop sinning. If your hand causes you to sin, take extreme measures to stop sinning. He's not saying actually cut it off. He's saying take extreme measures to stop sinning. Make sense? Ask for help. Ask your growth group for prayer and support. Ask a Christian friend. Ask your spouse. Ask me. Ask God for help to stop sinning. It's humbling. It's quite possibly humiliating. So what? We are the people of God. We are salt and light. And we want to obey God to the extreme. We don't want to see where's the law and how do I just jump over it? No, no, the law's fulfilled in Christ and we want to obey God out of, we want to obey the law out of thanks to God. So we want to obey the law to the extreme, not half-heartedly, so let's take extreme measures to avoid sin, to be light in the world as we are. Point four, divorce and remarriage. Remember who you are. You are a child of God, saved by grace. You're the salt of the earth and the light to the world. Look at verse 31. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a controversial passage, and I welcome your questions and comments at the end. I've read a few commentaries on this. I've read my college notes from my ethics classes. I've read a 25-page document put out by the principal of Moore College through the Doctrine Commission this week on this, and now I've got five minutes to pass that all on to you. Uh, again, a gross injustice to the sensitivity and complexity of this topic. Hence, I welcome your questions and further conversation, please. A few things to say about divorce, and try to hear everything I say, 
before jumping to any conclusions in your minds and hearts. The first thing to say is divorce is an evil which God hates and Jesus hates and we hate too. What God has joined together, let not man separate. We've all heard those words before as we married or at a wedding. Reconciliation is always the desired outcome from any marital conflict or even separation, except where there is a threat, an ongoing threat of violence. Domestic violence is unacceptable in all its forms and should not be tolerated. If you think you are the victim of domestic violence in any form, please tell a trusted friend, you can tell me, you will be believed, so that you and your spouse can get help. We all want our marriages to last. We all know that divorce is wrong. No one stands at the altar promising that they will love, honour and cherish the other person as long as they shall live and then expecting to get divorced one day. Nobody does that. But we are a sinful, broken people in a sinful, broken world and even God's gift of marriage between one man and one woman all too often breaks down. And God's not naive about that. In fact, because of human sinfulness, he permits divorce under certain circumstances. Broadly, quite broadly, there are two circumstances under which a Christian person may lawfully, in the eyes of God, seek a legal divorce according to the Bible. The first is very plain in the text. It says adultery. Now, bear in mind that this teaching on marriage, the divorce, follows directly after the teaching on divorce. Very important. I think we can be too soft on what adultery actually is. Jesus talks about adultery of the heart. We need to be harder on ourselves when it comes to being faithful to one another with our hearts as well as our bodies. The second half of verse 32 is, I believe, my best understanding, a corrective to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, for the sake of the Pharisees in particular, but also for all. God's model for marriage was set up in the Garden of Eden. One woman, one man for life. By the time Moses was on the scene, it seemed that no-fault divorce had become a cultural norm, and Jews could divorce if they found their spouse displeasing in any way, shape, or form. She burnt the dinner too often. She, I don't know. Um, she, whatever. Um, didn't want to go to, didn't want to go to the football game and watch the Tigers with them. You know, like, oh, I'm getting divorced. Um, Jesus saying, no, you can't do that. You can't divorce your wife just on a whim. And then she remarries and you make, you make her an adulterer when you do that. She's in the eyes of the Lord. She's still married to you. You've, you've had no good reason to divorce. In my eyes, says Jesus, you're still married. She goes and marries someone else and sleeps with them. You make her an adulterer. This was to protect the woman. Sounds harsh towards a woman, but it's not. Harsh towards a bloke who's been a jerk. It's, no, you can't 
divorced like that because that makes her an adulteress when she goes on and marries someone else, which she needs to do, particularly in first century society, to survive, okay? So that's what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. Um, And the law still applies for us today. Divorcing for the purpose of marrying someone else is still adultery in the eyes of the law. You meet someone else, you fall in love with someone else, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to find something that's wrong in our marriage so I can divorce you and marry them. That's still adultery uh, in the eyes of the law. So the first explicit reason given is adultery. And the second is abandonment, also known as desertion. And this is tricky, and it's a very, very case-by-case thing. In the event that one party to the marriage abandons the other, for whatever reason, legal divorce is, is permissible for the marriage has already been lost relationally. In the advantage of one, one of the couples deserts the other for whatever reason, they run off with another person or they just decide they don't want to be married anymore and they leave, uh, there's domestic violence, that kind of thing. They've broken the marriage covenant, the promise that they've made in, in an ongoing way and it's case by case and it needs counsel and wisdom. In that case, this person's free to legally divorce uh, in the eyes of the Lord. Um, okay. In the case of desertion and consequentially divorce, the marriage is dead. It's dissolved. And both parties are free to remarry. As Christians, we want to be entering into every marriage covenant with a Christian mindset. Uh, in the case where the horrible thing of divorce happens, we still want to be thinking about if we're going to marriage again with a Christian mindset. It's, it's forever, despite the fact I've been divorced before, marriage is forever, despite the fact that I've been divorced before. If that person turned out not to be a Christian, this time I want to make sure I marry a Christian person who loves the Lord. I want to seek a brother or sister in Christ to be united to in marriage. For life is always the mindset for a person entering into marriage. I am not convinced at all that divorced people are somehow forever connected to their ex and remarriage becomes adultery. I think that's a poor reading of the text. Uh, When Paul addresses the unmarried in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, there's, there's, um, there's no exceptions there. And the unmarried in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 encompasses those who are divorced as well as those who have never been married. There's no sense in which he addresses the never been married and the divorced uh, separately there in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. He puts them all in together as if they've never been married. I hope that makes sense. Please ask your questions later. But also note 1 Corinthians 7 that he encourages them to stay single as he is. He champions singleness. He says singleness is great. He thinks, Paul, he knows stuff. Singleness is a great blessing from God and there are many advantages to singleness as a follower of Jesus that married people don't enjoy. There's a freedom to serve as a single people, as a single person that married people don't have that freedom. They've got to look after each other. That's good and right. There's even a kinship, I think, with the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus that married people do not have if Paul and Jesus were never married. 
Again, there's so much more to say about singleness and the rich blessing that it can be. Paul says, if you're single, stay single. It's great. If you really want to get married again, get married again. It's great. Okay? Okay. Um, again, much more to say. And I just want to finish our thinking on divorce with this thought um, to those who are married or seek to be married again one day. I just wonder if one part... I just wonder... Hear me say this rightly. I just wonder if one part of the skyrocketing divorce rate problem is that divorce is a relatively easy option in our day. Now, don't hear me wrong. Divorce is not easy at all. It's painful and it's a legal nightmare. But is it easy enough that when marriage gets too hard, there is a safety net there of divorce? It's good that it's an option in the case of adultery or in many cases domestic violence, but I'm talking about the 95% of marriages. I think it's bad that it's an option because I think it weakens marriages when we feel that we have a way out if we need it. I think in the 95% of cases, not where there's violence or anything like that, in the 95%, if we think there's no way out of this marriage, in a sense, we're stuck with each other for life. You've got to work out your stuff, right? You've got to work out your conflicts. You've got to nip things in the bud. You've got to stay on top of your marriage. You've got to put effort in your marriage. You're in it, and you're in it for life. So I think the divorce is relatively easy, weakens our marriages in our thinking, but I think that divorce exists is good when terrible things happen and the, and the marriage needs to end. It's just a thought. Um, I'm really going to just skip over Oaths completely because <laughs> we've been at this for a long time. Um, in short, don't make promises and not keep them. Be a person of your word is what Oaths is talking about. Uh, in short, don't say, yep, 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 I'll do that, yep, I'll do that, and not do that. Ignore the maybe button on Facebook. Pretend like it's not there. Say yes or no. That's it. Um, let me finish up. Again, with the picture on the screen. This is all a hard teaching, right? And it is all deeply personal and painful for many of you. And we want to remember always the grace under which we live the grace of Christ which we enjoy, the forgiveness we have for our sins, past, present, and even future. And out of thankfulness, we want to do our all for Jesus. We must not, if you have sinned, if you harbour guilt, go to the cross and find forgiveness afresh. And that will free you to live for Jesus all the more. We want to be people who live out the law, who obey God to the max. Not like the Pharisees looking for the minimum to get by. We want to obey God with our whole heart. And I think the key to that is not to try harder, but to remember who you are in Jesus, saved by grace, salt and light. Let me pray, and then we'll see if there's a couple of questions Otherwise, you can write them down in the Senate cards. I'll pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we do thank you so much for your grace to us through Jesus.
Lord, we thank you that though we have sinned, there's ways in which we've sinned, probably all of us, which we dare not tell another human being. But you know what they are. And you love us still. And you forgive us for that. Christ's death for us covers over all our sin, no matter what it is. And we thank you so much for him. And Lord, we ask and pray for wisdom and we ask and pray for fellowship in our church so that we might pool our wisdom together as we seek to, to love and honour you with our lives, with our actions, with our words, with our eyes, with our hands, with our hearts. We long to honour you. And we pray that you help us to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you help us to do that by the power of helping one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.